welcome to the newest episode of Tuesday Conversation with Friends, where you get to hear some amazing music and my chats with those incredible artists. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel, to like this particular episode, and to get notification for future releases. The video format is on YouTube. If you'd prefer the audio-only format, you can find us on major podcast platforms. You will also be able to find social media links for myself as well as the guests on the show. So now, see you inside the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Conversation with Friends. Today. I have one of my personal college professor who has influenced me both personally as well as professionally, Dr. Donald Berniger. How are you? I'm so fine. It's so good to reconnect with you and and see how well you're doing and miss your beautiful voice singing in my choir. That's for sure. <laughs> I miss working with you. And now, would you please share a little bit about who you are? Yeah, I was a 40-year college professor in Southern California. Also taught at the secondary and middle school and elementary level for a bit of. Bit of time, and uh, I retired in 2015 and began writing. And I still teach at California State University, Los Angeles. I teach choral methods right now, and uh, in the summers I am part of a master's program that we developed 21 years ago for teachers that they can spend some time in the summer doing that. And then, although I don't sing professionally much anymore because I just don't get asked, I can still <laughs> sing, but. Uh, well, but I do a lot of private teaching too. I have a lot of opera uh, students uh, that may maintain their residence in LA, but I have some from out of state that come and visit me. But yeah, it's a, still a busy time, even though I've been almost six years retired. I'm not sure how you qualify retirement is. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, for me, that's reducing the work week to 40 hours instead of 60.、Uh, Dr. Berdiger is being very humble and modest in the way he introduces himself. He's an extremely well-known choral director and an educator who have produced and taught a lot of people who have moved on to. Be choral conductors, including myself. Before we press record, we were talking about a lot of technique that's、um, singer-oriented in the way you conduct. And I have to share with you that I believe many of the jobs I've received as a choral conductor was because of the things that I basically replicated what I've learned. And you were the only choral conductor that didn't just conduct us. As singers, to say this is how you, I would like for you to produce a sound, but you explained to us why you were doing what with your body, with your gesture, and it was never just a, I said so you do, and it was very、um, you were very interested in the students and the choral members to actually have a true understanding of the complete art of choral right. music. Right. I, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, for me, it starts with the study of the music itself. I think that if you're talking about a conductor, we tend to, as you were sharing with me before we started taping, that we tend to go to a conducting class and learn patterns. Right. And in my conducting classes, you don't learn patterns; you learn musical gestures,、mm -hmm. and that that can turn into patterns. But It's like when we see a score and we see three, four, and we immediately our hands start going one, two, three, one, two, three. Well,、right. that doesn't represent the music in any way, shape, or form. Right. So for me, it was two part. One, you have to have an understanding of the music, and second, you have to have an understanding of the instrument, which is the voice. Right. 
Yes. And I didn't have the luxury of understanding just the tenor voice, which is mine. It, I had to understand the soprano and I had to understand the mezzo and the alto and the tenor and the, the baritone, the bass and what their potential was in singing and how my gesture, in other words, looking like a singer and standing like a singer and, mm -hmm. and breathing like a singer could influence the sound because I found that to be a very efficient way of teaching. I felt um, the further I went in my personal study as a professional opera singer, the more I appreciated the things you mentioned during the choral rehearsals. A lot of people have this concept of very, a very big divide between solo singing and choral singing. But the more I studied, the more I appreciated a lot of things you mentioned because a, a lot of it was delivered to the singers in the choir in an almost subliminal because it was okay. about how you as a conductor stood, how you really, a lot of times I would even recall I didn't realize it at the time because I was very young, but I visually can recall the way you hold your ribcage when you were conducting. Right. And the way you were standing, the way your feet and your legs were supporting your upper body. And then the shoulders and the arms were extensions of all that. And, uh, and it just naturally, organically changed the way the singers even sat or stood when they were singing. Can you talk a little bit about how how that became yeah, something so, that you I, understood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm so glad you said it that way because I see my arms as an extension of my inner thinking. There's actually a technical terminology that I teach my graduates, which is um, that we have to we have to follow through on what our inner thinking is, our inner thinking mm -hmm. about the music. So as a conductor, I'm generally a little bit ahead by almost a beat. Right. in terms of their under of, of where they are in the music so i'm actually leading and not following right which means i actually have to be singing it i have to be mentally singing it and that means i have to incorporate the most efficient and most expressive ways in which i do sing it very much that's so. right and uh, and another thing that i always felt was unique was you always maintain a singing career in addition to directing you had a real personal relationship with how the human voice works. It must have changed the way you perceive the choral sound and how you bring it out of your singers. Yeah, I, I, that's that was really important to me to know the voice, to know it as an instrument from a technical standpoint, but also to be able to stand up and say, I understand how to project my voice efficiently and I know how to sing this kind of literature and I can interpret Bach and I can interpret Mozart and, mm -hmm. you know, all those factors that give kind of legitimacy to your teaching. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I was pretty careful to choose projects that were Friday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays so that I could teach my full week and then go mm -hmm. and, and do my professional work uh, as a singer. Um, but I was very fortunate that the three, probably the three best choral people I worked with growing up were all people who appreciated solo singers and allowed you as a choral singer to sing. Yes. And they, they didn't have their hand in your face and they weren't trying to hold you back. Mm -hmm. And I interpreted that as the notion of musical intention that it is always helpful. It is always good when you have a very clear musical intention and an expressive intention. And that takes the, the notion of, uh, uh, choral singing, you know, suffocate your voice and solo singing is for real singers and all the nonsense that goes on because I think they're 
simply is a bit of uh, lack of information. And so some of the best singers I know in the world sang choral music, mm-hmm. but they generally allowed you to sing rather than worked so hard on the quote unquote blend. That's a word, by the way, blend that I've never used in any of my choirs, even though my choirs are known for their blend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, generally speaking, means taking something out of your voice, like take the vibrato out or sing with a straight tone, mm-hmm. things you never heard me say. But right. if I say, I want this to be in tune and I want you to agree on a vowel, mm-hmm. you're going to modify your vowel, you're going to modify your vowel to do that right from the beginning. So I, it's me saying to you, I, I believe you're a musician. I believe you have good taste. I believe you have awareness. So therefore, let's use those tools to create a good ensemble rather than saying, I don't want any vibrato or I want you to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Kind of the negative way of going about creating sound. I felt as a young singer, it was a very empowering experience singing with your chorus. I uh, Thank always, you. It was so true. I always felt like I could sing. I could be free. Even though I was making music with a lot of other people, with a joint collect consciousness of a musical idea. But, That's it. But I always felt free and I always felt oddly flexible, you know? Because, yeah, because yeah, those are not the things you associate with choral singing, especially with somebody who has a bigger instrument. But you right. always made it possible. Yeah, for me, the words balance, coordination, and flexibility are the three key words. Mm-hmm. And when those words are put together appropriately, like any athlete, then you create the kind of energy that allows you to be expressive. Mm-hmm. I think I think very often we are trained to hear things and say, I don't want that, I don't like that. And so you begin to suffocate that rather than mm-hmm. build on what's actually working. So this, yes, exactly. So this notion of freedom has always been very important to me. The, the people who sing for me generally call it the Brinegar Massage <laughs> that, I, that, that they come into rehearsal and I through the gesture massage the voice into its fuller expressivity and then we go about trying to be expressive so that's very very important to me I love that I love that and I also remember um, I remember something you demonstrated and showed us is how you place the singers who sits and or stood next to whom and why it was so and uh, it really changed the sound. It made it easier for everybody. The people who have lighter voices, who people who have heavier voices, people who, who tend to sing sharp, people who tend to sing flat, people who tend to sing in the center. It just, there was something that happened in the way you yeah. place the singers. And I employ that with, a cor- with the choirs I've worked with. And Good. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's magical. But would, would you talk about that a little bit? Because I think more people need to understand how that works a little bit. Yeah, I mean, what essentially is happening is you have acoustics at work. And it's true that if you stand on one side of a singer based on your ear dominance versus standing on the air, other side of the singer, you'll tend to be more keenly aware of their sound and be able to find a way to um, to match intentions. Um it is also true that if you stand on certain sides of certain singers, that the way the waveforms come out of your mouth actually can cancel each other out. So I'm always looking for ways in which the two voices can be knit together so that the sum total of their energy is greater. We call it synergy, mm-hmm. where it's not really possible in physics. The magic of it is that if you stand on this side, you sound less loud, but you stand on that side, you sound louder. How can that be? Well, but that's just the way happens. waveforms work. Right. It happens, right. 
So and through experimentation, I just simply matched the lightest voices and uh, down the line to the darkest voices and then put them in like groups mm -hmm. and then in rows so that they inform each other in the best way and make sure everybody can hear mm -hmm. the best that they can mm -hmm. and that they're in a position to sing the, the freest and most flexibly that they can. That's what I look for in lining up a choir. And I think that's why the word blending doesn't really have to come into in a verbalized way of communicating because you're utilizing the you're you're maximizing what each voice can do collectively that's right that's and right that's it exactly before, yeah even before they open their mouth even even before the rehearsal officially begins with the notes they are the information where they're going to be maximized with just how their natural instruments are there you go very I love that. You see, yeah. You see, it's it's some stuff never goes away when it's taught <laughs> properly. <laughs> I just well, love it. <laughs> well, I call I call them mental time bombs, as I told you when you studied with me, that there are some things you just can't understand now because they're not within your realm of experience. But if I get it in there right, yes. at some point you're gonna wake up one day and you're gonna realize that. You may not realize it's the connection that you and I have, but you also, you just feel that it's right and that it's real and that it works. And I, I think that the art itself is the teacher in that sense. Yes. yes. That, if you, that if you get into the organic side and into the human side of the art, those things are just so, um, I wouldn't say obvious, but I think that they become inevitable. Yes. And so therefore, if you follow this track, and you're successful, you follow the inevitability of how good information unfolds in its own way. I was always, so it, was, it always was a pleasure, a, a good surprise, because over the years, I cannot tell you how many times it just kind of popped in my head, Dr. Berniger did this, let me try it. And then the choir does something because it is so oriented towards the singers you have, not a preconceived right. sound. That's I right. Thought, and because in order right. for any of this to work, I have to look at the singers I have. And you know, the, the joy and the pride those singers experience after they hear and experience the difference has made it very meaningful for me. That's great. Yeah, especially in volunteer choirs. You know, sometimes they just think of themselves as accepting, oh, we're just a bunch of people who like to do this together. It's, we're not very good. And then they come together, they, they do the kind of work they can take pride in. And um, but the, the key was never, I'm going to come in here, this is what I'm going to do. It's always been a privilege for me to have them participate and we together Good. discover what music would sound like with this combination. And it's absolutely fun. And um, I had this epiphany that was everything I do as a soloist is tied to my ability. So there's always this tension of what I think needs to happen and I have to make it happen. But when I started conducting, it was amazing what I thought would come, just, just come, up, come out towards me versus come from me towards them. It was coming out towards me. And I always thanked my choir for the privilege of them participating in, a, in my process because whatever I thought of, it's happening, except it's not coming from inside of me. And that's yeah, all. That's so beautiful. And it's so right. Absolutely. So right. You know what the word conductor means, right? I'm to not flow sure. Through. Huh? To flow oh, through. To flow through. To, to flow through. So yeah. as you conduct, you're receiving the sound that you are in fact predicting. 
And uh, an experiment I do with my students is I say, think only about the soprano part, but just conduct. Don't look at the sopranos. Just talk. And also you can hear the soprano part getting louder. And I said, now think only of the tenor part. And now the tenor part gets louder. And everybody in the room experiences it. Where's the mat? I mean, how does that happen? <laughs> well, it means that it means that our thinking goes into our gesture and our gesture communicates at a deep and profound level that we can't even fathom. You know, we, we it just happens, you know. And then the next, yeah, and then the next thing that really surprised and really delighted me was, you know, I think a soloist, our interpretation often is based on what our instruments would be. But when I started conducting, I found myself to be a lot more creative because I wasn't limited by me. It was truly by imagination and creativity. And I had to problem solve too, to see what I can do during the rehearsals and the way I conduct to bring the singers to be able to match up with the musical ideas. May not be the same vocal sound, but the musical ideas. And, right. um, and, and right. I, I found myself became a lot more colorful and creative as a soloist because of conducting. Because I, I got into the pattern. Absolutely of, true. Yeah, it wasn't really intentional, but I got into the pattern of thinking of musical interpretations as a soloist based on what my voice or my hands would do. But then when I started conducting, I was able to perceive music outside of me. And then it came back to my solo work. And it was just such Very an incredible experience. And um, so I want to thank you because I feel you've given me a gift for life. <laughs> and it's just been well, amazing. Yeah. Such a joy to see how you're using it so beautifully and understand it so completely. It's great. And uh, now I want to go further back into your life. We're going to travel through the time and uh, the time machine because um, I've seen um, some of my colleagues and now some of the younger students I work with. They uh, they're responsible musicians who are who want to do the right things and uh, who want to make a living doing music. So they go into teaching secondary school systems. And uh, I know you started your career teaching, but there were changes that came along the way. And there were things you did during your time that developed you that helped that that eventually you didn't stay in that space. So can you talk a little bit about what you did during those years and uh, what do you think is required? Well, I think, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that you, um, we, we kind of follow things a little bit haphazardly. I think many of us, when we go to college and study music, want to be the soloist or the featured right. performer. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I started teaching very early. I was a trumpet major in college when I started and I was teaching trumpet to junior high school kids when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. You know, basically just sharing and charging a very nominal rate. And, right. <laughs> um, but I so enjoyed seeing someone understand something. And I began to know that if I understood it, then I had a pathway for them to understand it. And if they understood it well, then that, that was realized success, right? right? And I taught elementary school for the LA School District for one year. Um, we were actually practice teachers, but they didn't have enough teachers. So they actually just had us teach the classes. Mm -hmm. And the supervisor wanted me to continue to teach elementary school. But my mind was, I want to, well, I'd rather do high school. You know, that's really where I want to be. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate to get hired into a high school, junior, middle school. During that time, then your voice starts to develop. Right. 
uh, you know, how your voice starts to develop at 25, 26. Mm -hmm. And I began to see the potential that maybe I could be a soloist also. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school and studied very seriously opera and voice. Mm -hmm. um, and then began to realize it really wasn't a practical thing. At that same time, I got hired by Pasadena City College. Mm -hmm. And now I was a college professor and I had to measure up to that. So there are other skills that I needed to get, including understanding my conducting better. So I went back to school mm -hmm. and, and uh, got advanced degrees to better understand the whole conducting thing, which was I was doing more naturally and intuitive than I was doing by, by conscious practice. And so there was always this kind of push and pull between being a soloist and, and being a conductor and being a teacher and, mm -hmm. and uh, bringing home a check and making sure that, you know, there was bread on the table and all that. So I, I don't think that I was intentional in a certain way of saying, I'm going to do this and it has to be this. And if it's not this, then I'm a failure. As much as I just followed success, wherever I was successful, I tended to incorporate that. More. So there was right. That's right. There's, so there's church music and the community chorale and the schools and, and things like that. And all of a sudden, you're 65 years old, you know? And <laughs> what time go? happened to the time? <laughs> right. You, you spent oh. all the time. I was almost 40 years at Pasadena City College. <clears throat> it's hard to believe. Shocking, right? I know. Time just flies by. I know. But yeah. Yeah, focusing on the clients and focusing on their success is the, really the reward. You know, spending time with you, hearing what you're doing is the reward to what you have done. It's not a, it's not something you can put in monetary terms. It's something you put mm -hmm. in just human value terms and cultural terms and right. and spiritual terms. And I, so the answer fully to your question is follow your heart, do what you want to do, become the best musician you can and work on that every day. Just get better and better and better. And, and things will take care of themselves. Um, we need fantastic teachers at the middle school, high school level. And they should be the very best musicians. They should um, be the very best musicians. Absolutely, indeed. because the students are at that very important time where they mm -hmm. need good information. So, yes. um, you know, I tell choir directors all the time, the choir can't be better than you are as a musician. That's right. And you know, it's interesting because uh, Southern California is very unique and different from other parts of the country in the sense that the demographic of the families whose kids go to the public schools, you're going to, ha you're going to have a lot of kids by the time they reach middle school, they have already had years and hundreds of hours of lessons and practice in music. That's right. And uh, if the teachers and not guide those young minds who are actually rather developed, then we, we can lose them. That's right. That's right. Um, generally speaking, if we, could, we could put it on the other end. Sometimes as teachers, we burn out. Yes. And we burn out because our ideas no longer, you know, grow things. They, they no longer develop. And the clientele we're working with seem uninterested in what we're sharing. It's at that moment. There's two things. One, when you feel like your ideas don't work. And two, when you're frustrated that you need to retool, you need to up your game, you need to get new information. And that's why if you work at becoming a better musician every day, it's you know, pretty hard not to be on the growing curve at all time. You know, what? who was it? Pablo Casals that was overheard practicing and someone says, why are you practicing yeah. so much? And he says, well, I think I'm getting better. Exactly. 
I know <laughs> as musicians, um, we truly have to stay fluid. That's very true and very open to the possibilities. And mm -hmm. I think to encourage people is to stay singing, stay studying, um, um, stay active and not only conduct your groups, but sing in somebody's group or, yes. you know, there are a lot of universities around you where they need recital choirs, you know, do, do an event and, and keep yourself connected and networked. I think very important. Right. And now speaking of lifestyle changes being fluid, you have been publishing books and I'd like to talk a little bit about what happened when Dr. Berniger stops going to the office every single day working 60 hours and well it's not 60 it's 40 so we got the extra 20 <laughs> hours a week so what are you doing and how did those books come about and what are they about I mean I I think we can guess what they're about but really <laughs> well I took a I took a special interest in how to help people um, match pitch, sing in tune, how the inner ear worked. And over years that became a research and a study for me. And then finally, because I could do it so quickly and so efficiently and people would come into my presence and say, how did you get them to go from here to here in five minutes? How did that happen? Yes. And I said, well, there's a procedure and there's a, there's a methodology and there's a way of going about it. And they say, well, what have you written about it? And I'd have to say, well, I know, I haven't written anything about it. <laughs> so I decided to sit down and write first about intonation and singing in tune and singing together in tune. And then I wrote a, a book, which was a companion to that, was how to teach this methodology, lesson plans and things like that. And then the third book was going to be a voice methods book, but I decided that because I was teaching so much conducting, it would be more practical for me to have a practicum on conducting. So I wrote literally in three months, a book on conducting called uh, conducting primer. And I followed that up and in three weeks wrote a book that did the exercises of all those things. In other words, how do you apply yourself and how do you exercise and do those things? And then the fifth book is a is a an analysis book where you can actually do analysis of pieces based on the methodology that I've taught in the first two books, mm. first two major books. And I have a series of five books now in the works that are all repertoire anthologies, uh, two anthologies on the Western canon. Uh, so we take from medieval up till uh, Brahms and then from Brahms on to now and which can includes a lot of composers who are good friends of mine um, like Lauritsen and Whitaker and Dan Forrest and people like that that I wanted to make sure uh, Elaine Hagenberg that got exposure Ellen Reed uh, who just recently won the Pulitzer mm. and then uh, a book on Latin American music, since we live in Southern California and right. you live in Florida, right. Latin American music is so important and yes. tends to be underappreciated by choral Very people because they don't have the repertoire. So there'll be 30 pieces analyzed in that book. And then uh, a book for historically important women composers. Yes. And then finally a book on Scandinavian contemporary composers. So wow. those five are in the works. They'll probably take another year to year and a half to get out, but there'll be a total of 10 books in the series. And, oh and um, yeah, so I've become a writer. <laughs> yes, you have. And I'm very glad because um, I've always wanted to learn more from you. 
But and let's switch gears for a little bit, and we can talk about repertoire styles. There's just something so um, expressively connective when you hear something done as it was intended. As it was. And I have a friend that that works with uh, children of of uh, foreign workers in the United States who don't speak English. Mm-hmm. And his work with them is to teach them American folk songs, because in the folk song we carry the inflection and the rhythm of our language. Right. For instance, American English is very close to the farmer in the dell. So if you listen to the farmer in the dell, and then you listen to the way I speak and the way I form my sentences, all of a sudden you begin to hear the farmer in the dell in the background. So we carry we carry language mostly through indigenous folk music. And so when that music gets over arranged or taken out of its tradition and put into a Western cast, we lose some of its essential expressiveness and its charm. Mm. And um, so I'm a real proponent of performing music that is, you know, native to a culture by people who are from the culture, by people who actually understand whether it be intuitively or by tradition or by learning how, how the song is supposed to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is how it's supposed to go. Uh, for instance, I was hearing someone do an uh, Afro-American uh, piece that was in a Caribbean style, and right. they changed it in, and changed the rhythm. And I said, why did you change the rhythm? And I said, well, we found this is easier. And I said, yeah, but it's, it's not the style. Here's the style of the rhythm. And the kids did it like in two minutes. Right. It wasn't that hard. They got it. But I need because I had some information about that and knew how to do that. I got them to do that. Uh, the world has not changed in its size, but our perception of how we can be has expanded. Right. So the world seems smaller. Yeah, that's tr- so very true. And Dr. Berniger, I just love this visit with you today. And, oh, thank you, know, you. Me too. It's so wonderful. And I, I'm sure the listeners would really appreciate and enjoy it as well. And I hope we have a chance to talk some more. And maybe next time we can talk a little bit more in depth about your books. That would be really Great. fun. <laughs> yes. I would love to do it. Well, such a joy to get to see you again. And thank you for all the good work you're doing. I really appreciate oh, it. Thank you for helping me to really influence me throughout all those years. It's, 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 I've been privileged to have very good teachers like you from the very beginning. It made a huge difference. That's it, a key. It taught me how to distinguish things that are good and helpful versus things that just sounds good, but may not be helpful. <laughs> a lot of truth in that. Right. Well, well thank, you, thank so you so much for the time. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you.